John the Baptizer. And our text, when we get to it in a little while, is uh, Luke chapter 1, so you may want to turn to that, that passage. The life of John the, Bab John the Baptizer holds a fascination to each of us, and yet I've never preached a series on John the Baptizer, and I've never heard one preached on John the Baptizer. For most of us, he's more of a mystery, really, than a familiar character. It's amazing how little you hear from a pulpit about John the Baptizer. He had one of the most... Um, difficult assignments that anybody has ever um, accepted. He was both prophet and evangelist. And as a prophet, he, it was necessary for him to stand against a wicked king and challenge the moral um, uh, impotency in that time, and he literally lost his head over that, and that's no pun intended. And as an evangelist, he broke tradition with evangelists, especially in our day. For example, he didn't preach in the cities, the big cities, to the vast multitudes that came together in the cities. Um, he preached out in a desert. And he had this backdrop of this waste howling wilderness as his setting where he preached. I remember sitting in the... Um, Civic Center in the Coliseum in Denver, Colorado, when the convention met there several years ago. And behind me was uh, sitting a young evangelist, a Southern Baptist evangelist, who was, who was just coming on the scene, really, and he was just making his name as an evangelist. Well, he was a pretty hot item, you know. If I called his name, he's now a TV evangelist. If I called his name, you'd know him immediately. And I heard this conversation going on behind me. My wife was my witness. This guy said, I'd, I'd like to call his name. He said, I'd like to sign you up for a revival. And the guy said, well, what size is your church? He said, well, you know, just a, kind of a small church. And he kind of told how many were in Sunday school. He said, oh, no. He said, I don't preach any of those little, little revivals anymore. He said, I'm going for the big stuff. He said, I'm preaching big city crusades, citywide crusades in the stadiums, and I'm not preaching any more of those little, little revival meetings. Well, John the Baptizer uh, preached whoever came out there, and that was a, that's the second point, how he broke with tradition. He, he didn't go to the people and, um, and preach something that made them want to come back, as a matter of fact. They came to him. And this man out there in the wilderness preached this uh, screamed really, he, he was a voice crying, and the Greek word means to lift up your voice and shout, and he cried in the wilderness, calling on them to repent, called his congregation such names as serpents and vipers, along with a few others, I would imagine. And he didn't look um, sharp, he looked strange. Didn't have a pink suit, white shoes, he didn't wear a Rolex watch, didn't have a power tie and scarf, you know. Uh, somebody told me this morning, said, I like your scarf. Well, he didn't have a power tie and handkerchief. He had one item of, um, uh, of, of uh, wear, and that was this strange coarse suit made out of camel's hair. 
And he didn't surround himself with this group of people who told him how great he was and told everybody else how great he was. You know, the PR people, the upfront people, uh, pointing him out as, as a um, you know, terrific young evangelist. He, he stood alone. And he was this lonely character out in this wilderness who pointed toward this solitary figure on the horizon of history, and he pointed to him. And when the religious officials came from the city to find out about him, his first response to them was, I am not the Messiah. There's the Messiah. And he said, I'm not the Word, I'm a voice. He's the Word. And I am a lamp, not the light. He is the light. He is the one worthy of your worship. And remember that John the baptizer is a man sent from God and he is this stern, austere, unappealing man. He is the first image of a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Now listen to what Jesus has to say about him. He said of him, he's a burning and shining light. He said of John the Baptist, he is more than a prophet. He said of John the Baptist, of all the men born of women, there has not risen one greater than John. Can you? Now I want you to get the impact of that. When he made that statement, he knew about Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation. And he knew about Moses, the one through whom God gave the law. And he knew about Elijah who called a people back from idolatry to to worship God. And he knew about Isaiah, this eloquent preacher who preached this marvelous message pointing to the Messiah. He knew all about these men and yet he said, of all men born of women, there is not one risen greater than John. Now, if I can remember from now on, I'm going to refer to him as John the baptizer. Now, contrary to what some of you think, he was not Southern Baptist. And you heard about the woman who who got into this debate with uh, a person of another denomination, non-evangelical, and that lady said, well, we can trace our church all the way back to the book of Acts. And this Southern Baptist said, we can trace our church all the way back prior to Jesus. And she said, well, how do you do that? She said, well, you know John the Baptist, don't you? I mean, he was Southern Baptist. He's one of us. Now, I'm going to try to refer to him as John the Baptizer because that describes what he did. Now, in, in, in this introduction, I think it's necessary for me to lay some groundwork with regard to the characteristics of a prophet. So if you've got your notes, I want you to hang into there. Let's start writing here. And, and, and just put a little piece of paper in the text there, and I want you to turn to the, to the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 1. To so the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 1. Now, if you can find Isaiah, you can find Jeremiah, because he's just in the neighborhood there to the right. And I want to look at ch- chapter 1 of Jeremiah and give you point 1. The characteristic of a prophet is this. He was called personally of God to do a task God assigned. He was called of God personally to a task. Now look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now he didn't get his, he didn't come by his trade by inheritance. He wasn't a priest. If a man was a priest, it meant that his father before him was a priest. And he didn't take one of these uh, um, adaptation exams to see what, what he was best qualified to do. He, he was called of God. Now, a prophet is a, is a person that God put his finger on and he set him apart. And he didn't apply for the job as the most, most of the time they wished they were not called, but God put their fing, his finger on them and he called them out personally. They were called of God personally to a task. Secondly, they spoke for God as a personal mouthpiece. Now I want you to turn back to the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Must be the fifth book in the Bible. Chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 14. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and diviners. But as for you... The Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Might underline that. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord. Look at verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And, and, and what he's talking about here, I guess you say, well, every preacher speaks God's word, doesn't he? Yes, but what he's talking about here is the supernatural transference of information directly from God through the prophet's mouth to, the, to, to mankind. It was infallible. So that when a prophet preached, he spoke the infallible word of God in this supernatural transfer of information from God through his mouth to others. Now we don't have prophets today. We have prophet-like men who preach a prophetic message, but it's not infallible. The limitation of the infallibility of the word of God is this right here. This is the only thing infallible. This is the only word infallible. But this prophet was a person who by divine miracle spoke God's word infallibly. And sometimes they didn't even know what they were saying. They spoke what God commanded them. And they didn't even understand it. And so if you went up to a prophet after a sermon, you might say to him, I got here in my notes that you said this and I don't understand what you meant. What did you mean by that? He might say to you, I don't know what I meant by that. I don't know the meaning of that either. All I'm doing is just speaking what God's told me to speak and this supernatural transference of power, of, of word. Third, these men were loners. They operated alone. They, weren't, they didn't operate in groups and they didn't travel in packs. The prophet's curse was solitude and their house was often a cave. And the desert was this traditional meeting place where they came to meet with God. 
So a prophet was a person who was called by God to a particular task, spoke an infallible message, and he operated in isolation and solitude alone. What about John in particular? So let's turn back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Now when we talk about John the baptizer, of course you know this, that we're not talking about John, the author of the Gospel of John, but I want you to turn to the first chapter, and we're going to see something about John the baptizer. Beginning verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, underline was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word was there means, if you put, if you put above that word existed, you'd get the right idea. In beginning existed the Word. It refers to the pre-existence of, 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 of the Word, of Jesus Christ. He was there in eternity past. But look at verse 6. There came, if you have a King James, it, it reads like this, there was a man sent from God. And that was, is the same in English, same word, but it's different in Greek. And what that word is in, in, in verse 6 is that there came to be, there was born a man sent from God whose name was John to bear witness of, of Christ. Look at verse 15. And John bore witness of him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now if you'll uh, just mark this down and read it later. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 gives us the three-fold function, John the baptizer. His function was to clear the way and to prepare the way and to get out of the way for the Messiah. He was to clear the way and prepare the way and then get out of the way for the Messiah to come. Now, with your notes at hand, let's look at the nation into which John the baptizer came. And now we're back to our text, chapter 1, verse 5. Read it with me. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, in the days of Herod, he came into a nation in the days of Herod. Now, there are two things that need to be said about that particular period of time, something religiously what was the religious life like? And what was the political life like of that nation? Religiously. The Jews were somewhere in between mediocre and passive in their religious. There was a spiritual and religious vacuum in the time. And because of the rise of the sects, S-E-C-T-S, because of the rise of the sects of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and these groups of people developed in that intertestamental, interbiblical period that existed in that 450 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. And during this period of time when God had no spokesman and no prophet, there arose these groups of people known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees primarily took the, the law of God and they put on top of that law 
rules and requirements and restrictions and regulations, so many that the people could not bear the burden. And in this hopelessness and despair that existed because of all these rules and regulations and this burden that, that was placed upon these people religiously, they, they kind of drifted into a kind of a passive existence. And, and the attitude was, well, who can keep up all of those requirements anyway? And synagogue worship existed. And it was a burden at best and a, and, and a, and a and, and weariness at worst, and the people were turned off to religious things. It was a time of a religious vacuum. No man spoke for God. Politically, Rome was an authority. Now you and I fortunately have never had to live in a nation that was controlled by some nation outside of us. And some people that you know about and read about have lived all their lives under the dominance of some other nation. Rome was in control of, of Israel. And the Romans were brutal and dominant and powerful. And, and, and the responsibility of this empire which rule, uh, Rome ruled was so great that they divided the sections up and, and placed them under the responsibility of Herod's. And in this period of time prior to the birth of John the baptizer, this nation was under the rule of King Herod the Great. And multiple marriages and numerous murders and financial ripoffs and, and immorality were attributed to that man. And outside of that, he's a pretty good guy. And this man, um, Herod the Great, died on April the 1st, April Fool's Day, 4 B.C., and his son assumed his uh, reign, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was a man without morals or mercy. And so here was this nation under the rule of Rome, dominant and immoral and powerful. How would you like to raise children in that kind of an environment? And what if you'd have been the mother, Elizabeth, bearing a son named John, who would one day stand not in the midst of this kind of, 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 of immorality in and, and, and this kind of nation, but he would literally stand against it. How would you like to bring a son into the world knowing he was destined to that role I want you to look at his father and mother. Just, I, wanna, I don't want to break the narrative. I just want to read it. You read along with me. We're going to start at verse 5. Now watch this carefully. And there was a certain priest named Zacharias in the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Both of them were in the priestly line. He was in the priestly line male side. She was in the priestly line as a female. Her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, and they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Underline that. Now, Barclay says that when a Jewish rabbi has a wife that's barren, he considers that excommunication from God, a curse from God, and they lived all of their married life in the shame and disappointment of barrenness without a child. See that picture. 
Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of the division. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense to go into the holy place. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right hand of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled. Now it was pretty common in those days evidently that an angel would come and they would get in this conversation with him. But something's going on different here. He was troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him. I mean, to be married and not have a son was to be cursed of God. They'd been praying all this time, and now they were advanced in years. Some have suggested that for 40 years they made the same petition. When was it heard? It was heard the first time it was prayed. That's what this means. Now why is it that we can pray today and that petition be heard and not be answered for 40 years? Well, there's an answer. The answer's simple. Because the answer comes to the prayer when two things take place. Number one, when the time is exactly right for God to get the greatest glory and when the time is exactly right to prove that it's humanly possible for this answer to come. Now let me say that again. The prayer will be answered when the time is the best time for God to get glory in the answer and the answer will come when everybody understands that it's humanly impossible for this to happen so that God can get the glory for it. So he says, your petition has been heard and it's time now for Elizabeth to bear a son. You'll give him the name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Let me say parenthetically here. uh, In whose sight do you want your children to be great? In whose sight do you want? That's, That's true greatness, to be great in the sight of God. I mean, by whose measurement do you measure greatness? In the sight of God, he's great. That's 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 true greatness. And he will not drink, he will drink no wine or liquor and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him. And there is the purpose of his, of his, that's his calling and his role. There's his calling and his role. And he will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? Now, doesn't that sound like you and me? How can I know this for certain? Now, you got an angel standing there telling him this marvelous story. He's been praying for it for 40 years. And then he said, Can you give me some proof? And the result of his, by the way, when you have the Word of God on something, you have all the proof you need. And he had God's Word on it. The the angel said, I've come to speak from God. When you have God's Word, you don't need any more evidence. 
But the result of not taking God at His word and questioning God and wanting more proof and getting more signs was that he would be mute. He would not speak again. He would be silent, unable to speak. Verse 20, until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which shall be fulfilled in the proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias, were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days which, I looked with fa- which He looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace from among men. Now turn, if you will, to verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her. They were rejoicing with her. They're going to help her name this boy. It came about on the eighth day when they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. Who is they? Well, the neighbors and the relatives. We got the name picked out. Don't you love it? My first daughter's name Cindy. My dad's name was Everett. He told everybody in Monday that we had named her Everita. <laughs> Boy. Woo! Got a, got a name picked out. And, and they had, we're going to name him Zacharias after, after the father. And his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. Why? Because that's the name God had picked out. And they said to her, there, there's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. Who, there's nobody called, no, in your family named that. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet, wrote as follows, his name is John. And they were astonished. Now what happens? The moment he did what God told him to do exactly as God told him to do it, he started talking again. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. Now here's this little boy there, eight days old, the first words he hears from his father, words of praise. And here's this man, the first thing he begins to say is words of praise. Fear came on all those living around them. All these matters were being talked about in all the hill country, Judea. Now, now, just look at verse 80, if you will. Let's get the end of this thing. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance, appearance to Israel. Now, if you want to do some interesting uh, research sometime, you, 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 try to, you find out where he spent his life in the deserts. Um, someone said that it was, it, was, it was where Sodom and Gomorrah used to stand. And there was not one living creature there, just waste, howling wilderness. 
And he survived on a diet of, of grasshoppers and wild honey. And he lived out there in this barren, waste-howling wilderness alone with God. And that's where he grew. And until he emerged on the scene, all we know about him was that he lived out there. Some suggested that this austere, kind of a hermit-like man was frightening to everybody who ever saw him. There's where he grew. Now I see some lessons, and this is what I've been working toward. I want you to get these down, please. All the rest of this has been runway. Now I'm fixing to take off. I'm going to give you four lessons from this story. Number one, it is in the worst of times that God's best servants emerge. It is in the worst of times that God's best servants emerge. He never leaves His people without a voice. And if you'll trace church history, it is amazing to see how emerging out of the worst of times are the greatest men God has ever had. And when it gets the darkest, there always seems to be someone that emerges, that calls people back to the light. In the worst of times, God's best servants appear. Secondly, there is no better place for training in character than in obscurity and solitude. There's no better place for training in character than in obscurity and solitude. The, the theme for disciple now is interested to see is do not be conformed, but be transformed. Now I know that it feels better when you've got a lot of people around you. And it, and it feels better when you have some support, you know, peer groups to, to be there. But the best place to train in character is in solitude. There comes a time when a person must develop his individuality, his identity, and the best place to do that is in obscurity. Leonard Ravenhill says that the accent of the church today is not on devotion, but on commotion. We like noise around us and people around us. Third, those people that God uses to the greatest measure are those people who are willing to be eclipsed by Him. Now let me just say a word about this. God is very jealous of His glory. And God is going to use people with whom He knows He can trust His glory. And God is bound to bless and to use those people who are willing to, for God to get the glory. And as a matter of fact, God is, is, is pleased to bless and raise up those people who live their life that He might be glorified. Now, I'm hearing people all the time say, Lord, you know, use me. 
Lord, use me. Let me be used, Lord, and that kind of stuff. Listen, God will use you if He knows that He can get glory from your life. And the people that God uses to the greatest measure are the people who are willing to decrease so that He can increase. The problem is that we have it reversed most of the time. One last thought. We need silent places. We need a devotional life. We need a desert. We need a place where we can get away and get with God. We need those times and places where we hear only the howling winds of solitude. We need quiet places. Henry Suso says that one thing, it's one thing to hear for yourself a sweet lute played sweetly by another. It's quite another thing just to hear about it. Now it's one thing to come to church on Sunday morning and to hear somebody else's testimony about his walk with God and it's quite another thing to have one of your own. And it's one thing to have some prophet speak to you from God. It's another thing for you to get in the desert and speak to him yourself. And I ask you a question that Corey Ten Boom asked in one of her books. If you can drink from the fountain, why are you always drinking downstream? What she means by that is you can come to the very source yourself. The only way that's possible is to have those desert places and silent places and devotional life and quiet time where you get along with God for yourself. And so here is a man who has a cousin and he comes out of this wilderness and the first thing he does is point out his cousin and say, that man you see there, my cousin, lived preexistent with God Himself. Now you talk about some kind of a, a word. Now that's a word. I, I got to thinking about that this week, and, and that's pretty astounding. Now where did he get that? He got that after spending 30 years on the backside of nowhere alone with God. Let me tell you something, folks. The reason why you and I have so little information, so little knowledge of God is we depend on what somebody else has to tell us. And we have no deserts. If there's anything that, that needs to be said from this text is that everybody needs a desert where he can get with God alone. Let's pray together. Father, I know that some of us will never be called to the specific task, but some of us will. And I know that some of us today, Father, will spend the rest of our life depending on what somebody else knows about you. But some of us won't. And I have a feeling, Father, in my heart that there are some of us that are hungry for a fresh walk with Thee and to know about You firsthand. 
to know you in a personal way. And I pray that you'll never let us be satisfied drinking downstream when we can drink from the fountain. I pray tonight that that you'll create in us such a desire to know the Lord that we'll not be content until we've given up everything to follow him. For I pray in Jesus' name. There might be somebody here tonight who needs to come forward and publicly declare your faith in Christ. I want to give you the opportunity to do that. And there might be someone who wants to come today to say, I need to recommit myself to the Lord, or I need to join the church. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So we're going to sing a stanza of invitation. We invite you to come while we stand to sing.